0: Welcome to OncopharmPod, the the inaugural podcast. I'm your host, John Bazar, and I hope that this will be the future home for all things oncology pharmacy. Uh, For now, we'll mostly be doing new drug updates, uh, hopefully brief, uh, and hopefully with some insightful context, and we hope that you come back to listen to us. Today, uh, as of this recording, it's the day after Halloween, and yesterday, uh, October 31st, 2017, the FDA approved uh, acalabrutinib. Um, a BTK Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, and when this first came out, I briefly reviewed the PI yesterday and, and the write-up from HOPA and from ASCO about this drug and thought it looks kind of like an Abrutinib me too. Well, let's dig into it and see if that's true. So this approval uh, is for mantle cell lymphoma uh, for patients who had received one prior line of treatment, so second line mantle cell lymphoma and uh, the median number of patients had, had received two prior lines of treatment. So most of the patients had a third line uh, or later treatment uh, in this phase two study, which was the ACE uh, LY004 study. It's a phase two study, so the approval uh, in the accelerated approval program uh, is based only on response rate. So the response rate here uh, was, as I look at my notes, was 81% overall response rate. Now, 40%, so half of the responses were complete responses. Uh, so drug info uh, specialists uh, and purists are going to cringe now uh, as I compare this to the abrutinib mantle cell lymphoma uh, approval, which was also accelerated approval, also based on overall response rate. But that overall response rate was 66% with abrutinib for mantle cell Uh, in a second line setting, and 17% complete response rate. So at first overview, it it looks to be uh, as good as a Brutonine for Mantle cell, uh, and quite an impressive number of of CRs um, of those overall responses. Again, 80% overall response rate, 81%, depending on whether or not you look at uh, the primary investigator or the central review. And half of those are CR, so pretty good for mantle cell lymphoma. And again, appears to be better than brutinib. Well, why, why might that be? Well, you can dig into uh, lots of publications out there. If you PubMed, uh, acalabru- Acalabrutinib, you'll see a lot out there, uh, mostly from the pharmaceutical company itself. And it appears uh, to be um, written about a lot as, as a, a more selective uh, BTK inhibitor. And in fact, there's a New England Journal of, a medicine publication from January 8th, 2016 by Burden colleagues, uh, and that's actually in the CLL population, but there's some really nice figures and some good IC50 tables, and abrutinib actually um, is a more potent um, inhibitor of BTK. It's got a lower IC50, one and a half versus five with acalabrutinib. But if you look at the other tyrosine kinases, you see that a uh, acalabrutinib is more selective, more specific for BTK, uh, especially uh, with EGFR, which was talked about, and we think of EGFR inhibition as contributing to many of the, say, class effect toxicities of TKIs, the rash and the diarrhea. And when we look at the toxicity profile of a calibrutinib, you go through the PI, you see a lot of similarities in the warnings precautions with abrutinib. <coughs> If we look at um, diarrhea, 31% with uh, calibrutinib, 51% in the same patient population for brutinib in the PI. Uh, Rash, 18% uh, with calibrutinib, 25% with brutinib. So a little less, it appears, EGFR-specific toxicity. Uh, the other toxicity we tend to worry about with abrutinib is that bruising or hemorrhage, and that's listed as a warning precaution in the package insert. So, 21% of patients with acalabrutinib in this pivotal study had bruising. Uh, that's lower than the 30% in the mantle cell lymphoma cohort with abrutinib. So, it appears to be a little less toxic. One thing I found interesting when digging through this, um, and I'd, I'd looked into this before, is why does why do why does brutinib why do BTK inhibitors tend to cause this? This, uh, this bruising or this increased risk of hemorrhage. And, um, you know, there are some studies, there's a, uh, a publication in blood uh, uh, basically hypothesizing it's due to uh, the uh, BTK and collagen induced platelet aggregation and impairing that process. Um, and if if you think about X-linked agamaglobonemia, which is a lack of functional BTK, those patients uh, don't have a lack of, or don't don't have an increased risk of bleeding that we know of. so there seems to be more to it than just BTK's effects and collagen induced platelet aggregation. What that is we don't know, um, but the fact that uh, maybe a calibrutinib is is less potent at inhibiting BTK, uh, maybe that's a reason it has less of this could also be because it's more selective. We don't need as high a dose to get that uh, BTK inhibition compared to a brutinib. Another toxicity we worry about, uh, with this drug uh, with these drugs are the cytopenia. so if you look at the grade 3 anemia thrombocytopenia neutropenia uh, with acalabrutinib you're looking at 10 12 15% so pretty manageable uh, grade 3 cytopenias at least for the patients we're dealing with by comparison of uh, in the same population is 9 17% and then 29% grade 3 neutropenia so so more uh, neutropenia seen with with brutinib um, I mentioned this New England Journal of Medicine article earlier, and this was in CLL, and this was uh, only 61 patients, um, and I'm, I'm just going to mention that because uh, we know that abrutinib is improved for for mantle cell for CLL for all, for for some other indications, including uh, chronic graft versus host disease. Interestingly enough, but I think it's interesting to look back at this other publications, the best we have um, that's that's published in a peer reviewed journal with a And there are similarities in the toxicity profile for the CLL patient population and with the mantle cell population. And the one toxicity I haven't mentioned yet is the most common toxicity with the calibrutinib based on these studies, and that's headache. Seen in 39% in that mantle cell study that's cited in the package insert, and 43% in the BIRD study from the New England Journal of Medicine. So 40% of patients having headache, it's a high percentage, we think of headache as a very, common but non-specific side effect with lots of drugs we don't typically think of headache as a, as say a counseling point that we would offer patients you know make sure that you're aware of this toxicity with this drug because headache is just so prevalent in everyday society but 40 percent seems pretty common and if you look back at this new england Journal medicine study in the discussion they talk about headache usually developed quote early in treatment and resolved over time. So as this drug becomes available and is proved, hopefully those of you that use this drug uh, will will provide some insight and give us uh, your experience in patients taking this and what that headache is. Does it need to be treated? Um, Does it truly resolve over time? Those will be important things uh, to consider. Now, since I did mention this uh, CLL study in New England Journal of Medicine, I will point out that the overall response rate in that study was 95% uh, only 10% uh, complete response rates, and that overall response rate is higher than what was seen with uh, with abrutinib in, in a CLO patient population. Of course, that was only 61 patients, so a lot more would need to come from that. So we've talked a little bit about the safety, the efficacy data. Let's revisit and talk more about the drug itself um, and some of the basics. So it, it comes as a 100 milligram capsule, and the dose is 100 milligrams bid uh, with or without food. Uh, it like many of our tyrosine kinase inhibitors that undergoes metabolism via 3A4. So it has all those interactions with 3A4 inhibitors and inducers, uh, and there are recommendations for what to do with that in the PI. Um, It does have an active metabolite, acalabrutinib, that has 50% of the potency uh, of the parent drug, uh, acalabrutinib. And one thing that's interesting, really, when you look at the the metabolism section here, is it has, um, both the parent drug and the metabolite have uh, some strange potential for drug interactions. It doesn't need to be a big risk, but uh, they can, both the parent drug and the metabolite, have an ability, uh, it is thought, to inhibit and induce some of these CYP enzymes, but only inhibit or induce weakly. So uh, it'll take some time to figure out what the true drug interaction profile of this drug would be. Say with some narrow therapeutic index drugs, uh, as we'll see going forward. Hopefully, so uh, really when you you kind of think about this, wrap this up. What is the the future of acalabrutinib looking at? Um, Well, you know, right now it's too early to tell. It's only approved for mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, If you compare, uh, if you think of uh, the acalabrutinib as an apple and the abrutinib study study as a pear, if you compare an apple to a pear, uh, the apple, acalabrutinib seems to be uh, better in terms of response rate. Now, whether that correlates to a progression-free survival benefit or overall survival benefit, of course, we don't know at this point. Um, Because it is more selective for BTK, it seems that it does have a slightly less or slightly lower toxicity profile with regards to diarrhea, rash, bleeding, bruising, even atrial fibrillation, which was something we've seen with Ibrutinib and occurs say in six to 9% of patients uh, on Ibrutinib long-term. If you look in the Ibrutinib package insert, that number seems to be one to 3% with acalabrutinib. So it does seem to be uh, a little bit safer not drastically safer. You're not look You're not talking about you know the percent of a side effect going down by 50 percent. It's going down by 10 to 15 percent compared to brutinib. So a little bit safer and maybe more effective, which of course would be uh, would be important for patients to be able to have access to this drug. Um, and and we'll see if that gets an approval for CLL or other indications down the line. Acalabrutinib, by the way, that's what I call it. I just really read about this drug for the first time yesterday, so in the future we'll see how the what everyone else t- t- tends to say about this. Um, I would be remiss though if I didn't point out the fact that Abrutinib uh, does not, uh, as, we, as we know of right now and there's no mention of this in the PI, uh, have an interaction or require an acidic environment for absorption, so no concern with somebody taking Abrutinib in, say famotidine or a, a PPI. However, uh, the PI is pretty clear with calibrutinib that it requires an acidic environment for absorption and is practically insoluble in a gastric pH of 6. And for that reason, uh, antide- not antidepressants um, and acids uh, of all kinds so, um, you know, um, calcium carbonate as an acid, H2s, and PPIs are, are listed as interacting drugs. In the acalabrutinib package insert, uh, and you're looking at a, a decrease in AUC of about 50% taken with an at with an acid. Uh, that is not a concern with the brutinib. Uh, so you could you could um, you know if you read the tea leaves and you look down into the future five years and, and say we have mature data on these drugs and it does show what things seem to uh, to be right now that acalabrutinib is going to be uh, a little more effective, a little safer. Um, if that ends up being the case, uh, you would have concerns potentially with using acalabrutinib in patients uh, who have severe GERD and have to be on PPIs uh, and, and would, be, uh, would be able to get the full benefit, in theory, from abrutinib, which doesn't have that interaction. So again, this is, this is my take on acalabrutinib, just, just looking into it, looking into some of the, the early data that we have, which again is mostly from the package insert and from that New England Journal of Medicine study. Um, I hope that you learned something. I hope that uh, this was short and sweet and to the point. Uh, again, all the specifics, I'd refer you to the, the package insert. I'm trying to keep this big picture looking at some of these things. Uh, and I hope that you find this useful. If you do, let, let me know. Talk to your friends about us. And uh, as as more and more people tune in and listen or download and listen, uh, then maybe we'll be able to expand this podcast and have some guests and, and grow the audience from there. If you have ideas for anything else you'd like to hear me talk about, feel free to let me know on Twitter, uh, or send me send me a note. I hope you've been listening. This has been OncoFarmPod. Pod.